0: Welcome to the podcast, The Common Bridge, with Richard Helpy. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors, but with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. My name is Brian Kruger, and from time to time, I'll be the moderator and host of this podcast. And welcome back to The Common Bridge. This is part two of Rich's discussion with retired and decorated Toledo police officer Bruce Helpe, and we had such a great response to this episode that we might make a third part available, maybe sometime later. But anyway, if you're a first time listener, you might want to go back and listen to episode sixty last week; it was really good. So let's join Rich and Bruce back in conversation. And to recap, Bruce was talking about being on call during the neo-Nazi riots in Toledo back in two thousand and five. You've
1: got to tell us a little bit more about that Nazi. Riot because that's something that I had either not remembered or didn't remember enough about it. So when you use the term riot, what occurred? There was was it white supremacists and Nazis? What had
2: happened was there was a there was a white person, a white man that lived in the north end of Toledo. In a pretty much a predominantly black neighborhood, it was a kind of a Bloods uh, gang neighborhood, and he felt threatened by the Bloods. So somehow he got in contact with this. um I guess it was the Amer. I think it was the American Nazi movement. They came up from Virginia. I think they were located down somewhere by Norfolk, Virginia. They came up. They got a permit to march through the north end of Toledo, and. Uh, Toledo knew about it in advance. They had to give the permit, so they we they have to. I don't know why cities were being forced to do this, but they had to provide security for these marches because they have a tendency to turn into you know debacles that cost a lot of overtime and expense for every you know any city that has them. But anyway, these these Nazis came. The march was supposed to start at Woodward High School in the north end of Toledo, and. Uh, Ironically, my partner and I signed up to do this. Uh, we were in the aviation unit at the time, but they were looking for officers you know, to volunteer for extra duty, so we we put in for it. And we were going to be actually the point men to lead this march. You know, the literally the first two guys walking through. You know, advancing the the Nazis. Well, they there was only, I think, from what I remember, maybe a dozen or fifteen of these Nazis that showed up. Well, the leader, there was one smart guy and the rest a bunch of idiots. You know, the leader, I have to say, seemed pretty articulate, but some of his followers started egging on the crowd. There was a few, maybe a few dozen people there originally protesting, you know, that were yelling, you know, standing across the street. Well, as these Nazis started agitating the crowd, they were throwing racial slurs, they were, uh, they, were, they were being pretty insightful. The crowd suddenly went from, you know, a few dozen people to hundreds and then thousands within, you know, I'd say an hour or two. And the crowd got angry and angry. They started throwing rocks. We were sent out there with shields and, you know, riot batons. So the first group, we marched them you know back we pushed them back we didn't there wasn't any we di- I don't recall I don't think we fired any kind of rubber bullets we just came forward in ranks with the shields and they moved back but they threw rocks at us the SWAT team came and they enter, they um inserted tear gas but it was a very windy day and the tear gas really had no effect they inserted it really from the wrong direction and the wind blew it didn't <laughs> oh jeez yeah, didn't they didn't play the wind direction or the wind. Went, it didn't come at us, fortunately, but it didn't go at the crowd either. So the first couple of blasts of tear gas really did nothing to, you know, disperse the crowd. But the uh, we walked them back. They then our command had us re- basically fall back to our original position, you know, by the school. Well. The uh, people that threw the rocks at us, the rocks you know, that bounced off our shields were in the street, so they picked up the same rocks and threw them at us a second time. So that wasn't probably the smartest plan. But that riot turned into there was a, a bar that was burned to the ground. There was quite a bit of unrest. There was a couple businesses that so, were... I just want to burned. make sure I
1: understand that, that you were... The, the Nazis, the 15-ish Nazis, wanted to do this demonstration... They apparently had a permit. You were providing security so they can do their march, as despicable as they may be. But the the residents said, hey, you know what? We don't want these guys here. And they kind of took it upon themselves to get these guys out of their neighborhood.
2: Right. And it, it escalated to the point where, um, I mean, you could see the, my sister living in California at the time called up my wife and goes what's going on i see on cnn there's a big riot in toledo oh jeez yeah there was you know you could see these where some of these buildings have burned out you know these business there's a few businesses that got burned i think the 7-eleven got overrun and looted but they didn't burn it to the ground there was a gas station across from woodward high school it got burnt basically burnt to the ground um they we ended up having to call in. They called in the state police. It went on for several days, from what I remember. I was only there the first day, but I was there when it jumped off. When it, you know, went from just kind of nothing to the turned into a riot. But um, that one really didn't have, I would say, much of a peaceful aspect of it. It kind of just went from. It kind of just went violent pretty quick.
1: And I mean, I could almost understand that the revulsion I was a little closer in. We've had the situation in Kenosha, Wisconsin, uh, that there was a potentially protective order, a perhaps a, an arrest warrant for this fellow, Jacob Blake. He had apparently broken into the apartment of his girlfriend, who had been mother to three of his children. He had assaulted her, stolen her cars, taken some things. And I believe she's the one that made the call, and the officers responded. Have you watched any of the video or followed this story?
2: The police came, probably became a, quickly aware of his warrant and what she was alleging, so they went to arrest Jacob Blake. He, of course, starts fighting with them. I think he overpowered basically two officers, from what I gather. Then he was heading to his car, where you know he allegedly had a knife. His kids were in the car and one of the officers shot him, shot him seven times. And I I come back to he's placed under arrest, lawfully under arrest for I think a felony sex offense warrant, you know, probably an on view domestic violence. Probably theft. I think I also read that he used a girl's credit card or, you know, bank card or something. He so he's basically stealing money from her too. And uh, you know, had access to a weapon. Also, he gets in his car and takes off at high speed. Now did the police just let him go? I mean, there's some situations where police departments have quit pursuing suspects. You know, is that one? I don't know. Shooting him, the, shooting the guy seven times, I suppose you could question that. You know, shooting him in the back, I don't know that's necessarily anything that's improper. You know, if he's going for a weapon, you know somebody could turn around and attack you with. They don't know. They didn't know if he had a gun or whatever in that car. Yeah,
1: he was going under his seat, and they did confirm that there was a, a knife under that.
2: Toledo just had an officer killed. You know, shot and killed here about two months ago. He was a young guy who had been on the department a couple years, and he was dispatched to a call. You know, in a not a too bad of a neighborhood up on Alexis Road, up on almost out of the city, almost into Michigan, at Home Depot, there was a guy. They called because he was wandering around a parking lot. He was trying to get somebody to give him a jump for his car, but the guy was intoxicated. They called him and said, This guy's drunk. And he, you know, of course, some people were actually good citizens blowing him off saying, No, we're not going to help you start your car so you can. You know, probably go and kill somebody or kill yourself. This officer Dia arrives. The guy's walking away from him. That's the big, uh, okay, you know, the guy was walking away. Well, this guy, Dia's calling out. Dia was a little small guy. He was, I don't know. I, I don't know if he's even five foot four. You know, I've seen pictures of him. I never met him. He, you know, he got on the department after I had left. But this guy was, had his dog. He was, had a dog on a leash, I guess, and wandering around, you know, trying to get somebody to give him a jump. Um, they're having like a after hours car show where they'd meet people with, uh, I guess old cars would show up at the parking lot and kind of, you know, have a get together. They, they've been kind of doing that in Toledo for 30 years. So anyway, Diaz. Calling out to this guy, "Hey, come here!" And the guys at home at a Home Depot store, so everybody's probably familiar with a Home Depot. He start. He walks away, ignores the officer, then suddenly wheels around, fires one shot. I guess out of a twenty-two revolver, and one lucky shot, he hits Dia somehow in the armpit, and uh, you know misses misses the vest. But is, you know shot and killed. He, you know, I think, he returned fire, and missed. You know, he shot several times and none of the bullets hit. The guy went into the woods while the police formed a perimeter around the woods. You know, they didn't go in after they they had a dog and everything while well, they heard a gunshot. This all happened, I think, around, it was on the 4th of July. I think it was just after midnight. Actually, I think it was the 4th of July that this happened. And uh, the officers waited to till, till about, they heard a gunshot coming from the woods about 3 in the morning. They went in with their dog and they found the guy had shot him killed himself. You know, people talk about, oh, he was just walking away. Well, that's what happened to Officer Dia with somebody who was there on a nothing kind of complaint. A guy, you know, probably who knows what what he would have done to him. You know, he's walking, so he wasn't in his car. He couldn't have really been charged with DUI. Maybe, you know, who knows what he would have done (laughs) police-wise. You know, for whatever reason, the guy decided to turn around and shoot the officer. You just, you don't know what you're walking into at any given time on any call, any day of the week. You know, as, you know, it's told to me, I think in the academy, every call is a gun call when you're a policeman. And I guess I'm somebody that learned that the hard way because you bring your gun to the call. And if you get disarmed, there's a gun, there's a gun there that can be used against you.
1: And I think that's one of the things they're talking about, trying to have other types of resources responding. But as you know, one of the, the things Sheriff Jerry, Jerry Clayton said was, You don't know when you go in. He goes, We social workers aren't going to go into some of the places we go in at night, unknown, unarmed. And,
2: and, well, we've had firemen attacked, you know, they, we, we've had firemen assaulted, you know, in Toledo that went to calls, they got there first. So they kind of started a policy on some of these calls that the firemen would stage until, you know, the police got there and the police were going first. And then, you know, if the coast was clear, then they'd call the firemen in because they were starting to get assaulted, you know, I guess enough that, you know, that became, you know, kind of a new policy.
1: That uh, version of that happened in the, what do they call it, the occupied zone up in Seattle. Some of the occupiers had turned on themselves Had shot someone in the, Uh, EMS, we're not going in because we might get the drugs taken off of our cart or we could be assaulted. We're not going in until the police establish that it's safe. And all these people that said this is a no police zone, suddenly when there was a a violent and life-threatening and indeed life-ending issue, they wanted the police department in there. Our last one I want to talk about was before I shift gears to some of the police chiefs, there was a, a man in Rochester, New York named Daniel Prude. Police responded. He was nude. They they put a, what they said, a spit hood over him, and he died in police custody. And I thought, well, that's odd. How would a person end up naked and with a hood on their head? And I understand that sometimes people that are under the influence of certain intoxicants like PCP uh, will strip off their clothes, that it feels very hot, and that they will be uh, spitting and expelling bodily fluids, and you don't know what that might contain, and that—that's the the protocol. I don't know if that was the same way in your experience in Toledo, or
2: we had a procedure. I'm sure they still have it. You where I, I, I've been to a number of those calls. At the end of my career, uh, my last. I retired in 2014. I was in the aviation unit from 2001 to 2014, but a good part of that time, maybe 50% of that, you know, we were grounded and I would work field operations. I'd expect to just be at a regular patrol officer going to calls like any uniform cop. And uh, on the day shift, there was a lot of those kind of calls some were called in by neighbors, some would be called in by business places, some by family members. Some people were violent, some weren't. You'd get there, you'd kind of talk to the people, try to get a feeling if they're really, you know, out of it. Like, you know, sometimes the the people that call it in are exaggerating what's going on. I would tell, I'd ask people questions to try to determine if they, you know, I, I don't remember there was three or four um Kind of bullet points on the pink slip at, at the res- we called it rescue crisis in Toledo, where you take um, people with mental health issues if they were off their meds, if they were if they couldn't complete a sentence, or they, they were talking you know about four different topics in the in one kind of sentence or paragraph, where you go I can't this is all gibberish whatever this guy's talking about he's going he's going to get an evaluation or if they were threatening physical harm to themselves or others, you know, I'd, I'd talk to them and if they, I'd ask them, you know, you're going to hurt yourself. Be, oh yeah, I am. And I go, like, okay, you're coming with me. And for the most part, you know, didn't have any trouble or any, you know, uh, have to use it really any force with most of the people at hand. They didn't like it. Some really didn't like it. They recoil, but I go, you know, some they would, I'd take them. They, they, see a psychiatrist that they could overrule the off they could overrule the pink slip I could take them in there and I've seen them where a half hour later I saw the person walking away from the place you know I drove past it again for, by whatever coincidence and it's like okay well they didn't deem that guy to be really that big of a threat to anybody after all but the spit hoods those have been around for quite a while we had them I don't know that I ever had to use one on anybody I can't recall that's that's a standard procedure. And when you think about, I think that incident happened in March and that's right when the coronavirus was kind of at its peak of hysteria where people didn't know how you'd get it. I remember that was on the police department when AIDS first came around and I thought, oh great, you know, you could get AIDS now from just, you know, somebody touching you or spitting on you or whatever. And, you know, some of that, hysteria died down over time when more became known but in march of this year when that happened you didn't know you know there was a lot more alarm bells about how you could uh coming in contact i guess with uh you know even touching surfaces that somebody had touched point i wanted to make i think going back to the last one i read something I think, I don't know, in the last couple of days, police get thrust into situations where there aren't any good options. You know, that's kind of the bottom line. You kind of go back to the in Seattle with the EMTs not wanting to go into those zones. That's what the police do. They get sent into situations where a lot of times the outcomes might not be very pretty. You know, you might have to use force, might be the only way you can end a situation.
1: And James Craig, uh, you know, again, the police chief of Detroit said, look, when you're dealing with someone resisting arrest, it never looks good for the police. And, you know, in Rochester, the African American police chief, Laurent Singletary, resigned rather than being held as a scapegoat. And this is someone that had worked 20 years in the department and worked his way up. And I think the point you call out is, exactly right. Police are often put in a situation where there is no good option. And Carmen Best, African-American police chief, female from Seattle, resigned. She said, you defund us, you're going to make us destined to fail. And we're losing good people who could be so instrumental in making sure that all of our citizens not only are treated fairly, but believe they're treated fairly. And again, Police Chief Chuck Lavelle in Portland, Oregon, also an African-American man, made a sharp distinction about peaceful protesters versus those that are violent. And until this call, Bruce, I didn't really click, yep, in the crowd, there's 100 people there, 97 of them are exercising their, their First Amendment rights, they're behaving themselves, they're not breaking anything, they're not even leaving trash. Three people are out there throwing projectiles, or 15 of them are. I don't know how 20 officers are, are really realistically able to react to that. I'm going to jump back before we go and talk about the mayors to Kenosha. Because the reaction after the Jacob Blake situation, you know, before all of the news was out about why the police were on the scene, and perhaps the choice was using firearm versus a weapon or versus having a high-speed chase with kids in the car, we don't know, that hasn't been investigated yet, but we had a horrible case of vigilantes coming into town, including a 17-year-old kid. And I have talked about a gun policy where that child never should have had the weapon, and now in likelihood is going to be doing some very hard time, if not the rest of his life. We know these situations are going to escalate in some way. And this escalated in a really terrible way. I don't know if you had a chance to see any of the reporting about Rittenhouse in Kenosha. I think The New York Times actually did a really nice job with their visual reporting. They took a lot of the iPhone and filming and put it all together based on timeline again a introducing a young person with an automatic weapon into a crowd and one thing leads to another and i've actually watched as the reporting industry tries to spin it I read a story just this morning i was in about paragraph 30 about the one that Rittenhouse shot but did not kill. It was in around paragraph 30 was the first time they mentioned that the person had a gun and the gun was out. And what led up to that obviously is a a lot of factors that have not yet been sorted out. But the reporting trying to say, well, he wasn't planning on using it.
2: Well, how do you know that? <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. That's, that's, that's what's getting so absurd about this.
2: Right. It's, ins- it's an insane asylum. I trace this back to open carry laws, which I don't favor. I didn't like those things. A lot of police are, I guess you would call big Second Amendment people, whatever that means. I, I like the Second Amendment, but the Second Amendment to me doesn't mean that every Yahoo in America... Has any kind of weaponry they want and can walk down the street at any time they want. I think there's a, a lot of folly with that. And Rittenhouse is kind of the latest example. We, let me give you an incident that happened, you know, another one in my career. This is probably, they said it's towards the end of my career, maybe 10 years ago. There was a guy mowing, mowing grass for the city. He was on a, you know, city lawnmower and He's mowing the, uh, there's a boulevard type street, a residential street. And the grass, you know, they nobody mowed it except the city. So the guy comes out with the city lawnmower, riding mower or tractor, whatever you want to call it. And, uh, you know, he's mowing down the foot high grass. Well, he was, I think, given a directive either by his superiors or by the mayor's office to, if there's any yards out there that have, you know, foot high grass, go ahead and mow them. You know, they're kind of a public, I guess called like a public nuisance. So this guy mowed, I think he just mowed the roadway to property line, like the, you know, the berm, you know, in front of somebody's house. Well, this guy got in his van, followed the, the city lawn mowing guy. Um, the guy was, the guy, the citizen was handicapped. He had a handicapped, I think, license plate or parking sticker in his windshield. Well, pulls up angrily yelling at the guy. Pulls back his shirt to show that he's got a gun in a shoulder holster. So I guess he technically maybe had it concealed. So the city lawnmower guy, I guess, you know, rides off, must have called his supervisor and calls the police. They send us code three, you know, lights and sirens. So we get there and uh, stop the guy's van. He's still kind of there in the neighborhood. And he's all indignant. We, you know, get, I think get him out of the car, get his, take his gun from him, and he's you know, bellowing about how he's got a right to carry the gun, this and that. And uh, there's a little debate, you know, even with the officers on the scene about, you know, okay, can we even take this guy's gun? And I go, well, you know what, here's the deal. We're going to look pretty damn stupid if we give him his gun back and he goes and shoots this guy or shoots us in the back when we walk away from him. So I go, Somebody better take that gun, book it down the property room. So we took his gun. He, of course, bragged that, okay, I've got, I forget how many he said he had back in his house. You know, I got 30 more just like it or whatever he said. You know, he ended up getting his gun back. I don't know if he got it back. But, you know, did he really threaten the guy with the gun? I don't know. I guess it's kind of a gray area, but I think he kind of let the guy know he had a gun. (laughs) So he didn't directly point it at him and say, I'm going to shoot you. But, you know, he this is kind of what you get. It's where you get the George Zimmermans. Uh, You get the guy up in Howell, Michigan that, you know, there was a road rage incident where he shot the guy dead. Well, I guess it was Brighton. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. uh, the guy dead. They had some kind of uh, you know, uh, kind of a road rage and the 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 other driver came up and, you know, bird-chested at this guy's car door. The guy shot him and killed him. And then he ended up he's you know, I think tried to stay in your ground offense, but there was witnesses that said, yeah, the guy was driving like an asshole and uh He had been in previous incidents of other type of violence. You know, I don't remember if he had guns or not before, but, yeah, he's in prison now for the rest of his life. This Rittenhouse kid, I have defended him a little bit, but only to this level. First of all, he shouldn't have had the gun. I I think he was below age, although I have read that I think you're allowed to... He's from Illinois, from what I gathered. Somebody has said, I don't know if it's true or not, if, if open carry starts at age 16. So if, if it's 16, okay, 17, he can have the gun. Can he go into another state? That's another question, even though they're right on the, probably right across the border from each other. I know, I mean, I'm assuming where he lived in Illinois was close to Kenosha. And I know Kenosha is fairly close to the Illinois border. Yeah, it's, about, 20, it says it's about
1: 30 miles from, home, okay. from his hometown.
2: I've read conflicting stories. I've read where he shot somebody at the gas station. I don't know. The only I'd see videos of him running with a crowd chasing him. It looked like they were throwing rocks at him. And either fell or was knocked down. And I saw a freeze frame of somebody. I think it was one of the guys he killed. He was getting ready. It looked like he was getting ready to kick him in the head. And that guy was shot. And another guy was going to hit him. I think I. I guess with a skateboard. Now whether that's deadly force, but if you got to look too, that it isn't just one person. If you've got a whole mob chasing you, it's not just one guy with a skateboard chasing you down the street. You got who who knows how many people were behind them. So I go, he might have kind of legitimate self-defense, even though he's totally in the wrong, Be probably being there. Morally, he's in the wrong. Legally, is he? I don't know.
1: Well, I think, that's a, I think that's an important distinction. Just because the law allows you to do something doesn't make it a good idea. No. And the mother that drove this kid to Wisconsin is not going to win the mother of the year, for sure. But, That's the thing that just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. And we ended up with a tragedy where I don't know what the outcome is going to be legally, but it never should have happened. And way back in episode two of the Common Bridge on this first season, I did actually propose a gun law that would be progressive in terms of the licensing just like airplanes and just like trucks and- yeah i
2: mean i i i can use myself as, a, as an example i have a cdl i got after i retired from the police department i i took I, i've never driven a tanker truck but i have a tanker endorsement i have triples and doubles endorsement i'd take a test uh, you have to take a test you have to pass you know written test for just for um, combination vehicles. Then you have to pass a driving test with a state examiner. It's fairly extensive. Now, I'm not saying you'd have to have all that for different guns, but like Switzerland, for example, you can have military weapons, but I think they have to be checked out of like an armory. They're assigned to you with a serial number and everything. It's like, you know, we've got I've been to gun shows and seen people buying, you know, some of the people buy walking around with armfuls of, of guns. It's like, you know, should that guy really even have a gun? I mean, that's my thinking. But
1: One of the reasons that the Common Bridge was started was because both of our political parties have become really good at attacking each other, and they are awful at coming up with policies. And the news reporting sensationalizes and distorts and leaves out vital facts. And all of us can agree that it's ridiculous to let a teenager go into a gun store or a gun show and get a semi-automatic rifle and a 1,000 rounds of ammunition and walk out. That can't lead to a good conclusion. And that was the Marjorie Stonem High School. That's what precipitated that. You have to know the person at the counter the gun store had a sinking feeling something bad was going to happen. And again, while it was legal, it wasn't right. And same way with Kyle Rittenhouse, it may have been legal, to take that weapon up there, but it's just not right. And that's what we need to be coming together as a society and demanding better performance by the people we elect. So let's talk about some of the people we've elected. And a common theme I'm starting to see is that there are mayors that are the ones stripping their police chiefs and their police departments uh, of the resources and the structures in order to do their jobs. Mayor Jenny Durkin in Seattle, if you remember, it was the summer of love until it came to her neighborhood, and then they became rioters. Similarly, with the mayor of Olympia, Washington, Ted Wheeler in Portland.
2: Right. He went in the crowd, and they... Kind of attacked him, then tried to burn his condominium down. So now, he's
1: <laughs> yeah, well, but here's here's the the thing: he yeah. refused to call everything that's been going on in Portland riots until he was writing to his neighbors and said, you know, I apologize for the riots that are coming to our home. Mayor Lori Lightfoot saw the crowds that had attacked uh, both Mayor Durkin and Mayor Wheeler, Mayor of Olympia, Mayor of San Jose. And so she deployed the police force to protect her street, yet allowed the damage to happen on the Miracle Mile, and indeed the most despicable act, ravaging the Ronald McDonald House, which is you know, for sick kids and, and their families. We're electing these people, and we're letting them do that. And we're electing representatives that are demonizing the police force. Now, we need good policing. No citizen should be afraid. Um, I know that my black friends are pulled over more frequently than my white friends. Uh, but I've talked to officers who said, look, we can't see in the car. We see it's a red Mustang that's going by. And we've already made the stop. We don't know who's in the car. And,
2: and I've, I've gotten that to be, I was on the motorcycle unit for three years. One of the main aspects of that job was speed enforcement. So I'd be out on I-75 with a laser gun, and I'd shoot the left lane, and I wouldn't stop people till they were 15 miles an hour or more above the speed limit. That was just kind of because I thought it's just too easy otherwise. I would get that. Well, you only stop me because I'm black. I'd walk up there with my laser gun in one hand, and have the speed that I captured them at plus the distance. I go, I can't see in your car. At, at 1200 feet away. I, I don't know who's driving. You know, I'm just, I shoot these cars on the far left. So basically what that other officer told you, yeah, I can, I can verify that. I got accused of that, you know, a number of times that, you know, I was racial profiling and I'm just, I'm speed profiling. And another thing with the traffic stops with black people driving while black you hear, and I'll look at Toledo as an example. Well, in Chicago, any of the any of the big cities, is, and in the Midwest, you know those are hubs for drug trafficking. Drugs and guns are transported in motor vehicles through cities. That's that's pretty much how they're distributed. So it's no secret that a lot of the, the drug trafficking in cities happens in the poor neighborhoods. That's you know where drug houses are. That's where the drug dealers are, the customers. So the police, of course, are going to stop people. So if you're driving through that area, you know, a big tool of police work is traffic stops. It's you have to have probable cause. It's it's deemed a Fourth Amendment seizure when an officer stops your vehicle. They have to have probable cause to stop you. So if they stop you because you've got a license plate light out, it might seem chicken shit, but that's probable cause. They have probable cause. You you're supposed to have a lighted license plate. You know, if you have um, a headlight out, you know, that's that's probable cause for the police to stop you.
1: And I think, Bruce, some of these things that you're talking about really speak to broader issues that our cities are not doing particularly well and that we know today in an information economy and moving to a biotech economy that education is the key to a better future, yet we've trapped a lot of people particularly people of color inside of cities uh, we know that the social determinants of health um, which cause long-term disease and lack of access to health care more prevalent in cities where there are more minorities and absent certain periods in our uh, recent history we know there's not the economic opportunity
2: Toledo was somewhat a vibrant place in 1983. There was 350,000 people living in, in the city at that time. It was, I think, the nation's like 51st largest city. It was right between, surprisingly, Buffalo, New York and Miami, Florida at the time. And Toledo had, I couldn't name the number of factories and manufacturing jobs that were in town, but over that, Over the 30, you know, one years I was a policeman, a number of those businesses closed never to return and those jobs have disappeared. I can remember the visibility of gangs was nothing, you know, in 1983. I never saw people walking around in red t-shirts or blue t-shirts. That's become more predominant in the last 25 years. There's a visible gang presence. And I said, I've, I remember telling other officers that I would see guys out at restaurants or we'd arrest people that, you know, had no job that had $800 cash in their pocket. But I, I said that a lot of these guys, I think, would had the economy, you know, had Toledo still had manufacturing jobs, I think they wouldn't have ever had the gang problems.
1: Well, even even this Jacob Blake that had been injured was starting to tell people, you know, look, work hard, better save your money, think about a future, a bit remorseful. Mm -hmm. And I know that the kids that we counsel and mentor through our Champions Program, they sometimes see the lure of the drug trade. And you know, we tell them, look, there's only two exits from that if you go in it. And one, you're dead, and the other one, you're incarcerated. And we both know a lot of people that ended up on both sides of that. But I think to the broader point that the lack of appropriate government policy to make sure that all of our citizens can get a good education, not be trapped by uh, monopoly school districts or unions, to make sure they can get good quality health care and not be subjected to the social determinants of health, the negative events, okay, is, is key. And then having an opportunity to go to work and earn a living that they can support themselves, then there will be less crime and I believe less of this tension. I wanna thank my beloved cousin, the most heroic guy I know, guy I've always looked up to my entire life, and you can tell why from his calm demeanor, his extensive life experience, uh, his deep intellect, and a just a real stand-up guy. So what we need to do with everything in our life is demand that our political parties and our reporting networks and our government are as good as the people that you hear on this common bridge podcast this is rich helpy we've been talking today with bruce helpy retired from the toledo police department signing off today on the common bridge
0: you have been listening to richard helpy's common bridge podcast Recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.